welcome to another episode of The Wow, the podcast that will help you navigate your way through the world of adulthood and the uncontrollable forces of womanhood. I'm Georgina Beasley, your host, and in today's episode, I sit down to speak to the wonderful Marley Silva. This episode was actually so enlightening that I decided to split it across two parts. So this is the first and the second will come out next week. Today in part one of this episode, Marley and I chat all things growing up as a First Nation Indigenous woman, the challenges she faced and navigating our education system here in Australia. I hope you enjoy today's episode. If you do remember to subscribe, leave a review, share it with your friends, tell everyone about it because it all does help. And if you haven't already, come join us on Instagram at the wow podcast underscore. Hello, Marley Silva. It is so fantastic to have you on the wow podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I've, I'm excited to be a podcast guest. It's a nice little novelty for me these days. So it's great. Yeah, it's really <laughs> yeah, good. Yeah, finally on the other end of the, the microphone. Yes, exactly. Before we begin, I would like to start by acknowledging the Ngunnawal people, the traditional custodians on the land I reside on here in Canberra. I pay my respects to their elders past and present, and I extend that respect to any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners here today. So I would love to know if you could share a little bit about yourself, please. Yeah, so I'm Marley Silva. Um, I'm a proud Gamilaroi and Dungadi girl. So my people come from... Um, more northern parts of New South Wales than where I currently am. I'm on Darawal country south of Sydney um, and I want to pay my respects to the traditional owners of this very beautiful country. I'm incredibly biased being born and raised here but I, I do think it is God's country. It's, it's very beautiful. Um, most people would know this area um, for Cronulla Beach uh, and we just have such an incredible natural beauty around um, this whole area. You know I'm back on to to the Royal National Park as well. And, um, you know, especially over the last 12 months when we were in lockdown and that sort of stuff, literally me and my family, what we've been doing is just bushwalking and really mm. immersing ourselves um, in that that stunning country. And it's been so good for our clarity and sanity. And so I have not ever been so thankful for, to live where I live. Uh, and I guess in terms of what I do, I am an author and, also a podcast host, if you didn't get that from my first um, thing I was talking about. Uh, yeah, my podcast is called Always Was, Always Will Be Our Stories. And I sit down and have conversations like this, um, but with Indigenous role models from all walks of life. Um, I also do lots of other things um, and do a lot of, I guess, um, speaking and a bit of consulting and whole bunch of things um my my sister and one of my friends always take the piss out of me because once I said I have um you know my fingers in in many pies um and so now every time I, and just you know f for listeners who can't see what I'm doing right now I'm um they always like flick their wrists over with as if they're putting <laughs> their fingers in many pies to to mm. laugh at me but I, I I'm really lucky to do it like a really huge variety of things that bring me a lot of joy so I, I would encompass it all under the umbrella of storytelling 
You're very humble about your achievements because I will admit, I feel like you have done incredibly well. I feel like you are one of the most well-known young up and coming writers of like the generation and your podcast has a really strong listenership. You've also launched your first book last year, which is just incredible. Like I, I honestly don't know how you have the time to do it all. Oh, I've, I've had someone said to me once, I, somehow you managed to fit more than 24 hours in a day. And I think it's like partly because don't sleep very often, very unhealthy, don't do that. <laughs> um, and I, you know, we all, I, I feel like it's such a, like such a Virgo thing for me to say. And I'm not even super into star signs, but I know this is so of my star sign. It's like I'm a massive perfectionist and like I just won't be able to stop something until it's done and it's done to a really high standard and that's just how I've always been you know from high school um I I've always been like that so um I've been really lucky I've had a lot of uh I guess moments where I've been in the right place at the right time or the right person has seen me and, and seen something in me in terms of my talent I think a really good example of that in recent years uh, was, you know, um, Mia Friedman, founder of, of Mamma Mia, uh, saw some of the work I was doing online and slid into my DMs and, and asked me over for a cup of tea. And uh, Oh, I my God. Be- what did you do when you got that DM? <laughs> did you just scream? Oh, it was just insane. I was down in Melbourne for work. I was working as a consultant for an Aboriginal agency at the time. And I was, like, in my um, hotel room and... <laughs> literally like quite late at night I just get this like little ding and I open my like dms and it was Mia Friedman and and it was like a blue tick Mia Friedman account and I was like what the heck is going on um and she just yeah she asked me over for a cup of tea when I was back in Sydney and um at their offices in Surrey Hills at the time and at first like I thought they were just gonna you know maybe if I wanted to write some stuff for them or or whatever because I was doing some freelance writing um for like NITV and a few other outlets then um but then she asked me if I'd ever thought about a podcast and at the time I didn't even really know what podcasts were um and she um you know it got to and I you know, basically talked out of my ass a little bit and was like, oh yeah, I've always wanted to do podcasting. That's exactly what I want to do. Like I <laughs> love it. That's what you I say to yeah. when Mia Friedman asks yes. if you've yes. thought about podcasting, yes. you say you absolutely yes, Absolutely. Have. <laughs> it's my dream. It's my dream. Um, and then they invited me for a audio test, but it was actually for a podcast that a different podcast they were working on that was like a, an entertainment kind of pop culture sort of one, which, you know, wasn't really up my alley, but I was like, again, I'm, I'll try anything once. And I think that's probably the best advice I could get, give everyone is just give it a go. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I did the audio test and then, I, you know, another week went by and they actually came back and offered, you know, me my own podcast where I would interview Aboriginal women. So that was the first iteration of my podcast, which was called Titters for Titters. So Titter, um, meaning sister, and it was lots of different women. Um, and then, so because of that, and because of the, the big followership that Mamma Mia has, a lot of other people became aware of sort of the work that I was doing. And then, you know, about six months later, after the podcast had come out, I got another DM this time from a publisher and it was like, have you ever thought about writing a book? And I was like, okay, this one, I actually, this is actually my dream. Like you don't understand, like from, you know, 15, I I used to say to my mom and she, you know, tells this story quite a bit now. uh, 
I don't know what it is I'm going to be in 20 years, but all I want to do at one point in my life is publish a book. I just want a book with my name on the front cover mm-hmm. because, you know, I've, I'm a writer and I, I have been, you know, from the the early days of being five years old and having like journals with like I'd write my dreams in like I've always done that and, I, I um, think I remember you shared a video of you seeing the first copy of your book yeah. on Instagram and it is the most beautiful video like if you just want to see like happiness and joy it's and it's also beautiful. ugly crying like really <laughs> ugly crying yeah but of course that's gonna come with it like my god if that yeah gosh I would have a lot uglier <laughs> if it was like- <laughs> <laughs> yeah no, it's it's really um it's been such a a special achievement and and something that yeah means means a lot to me so that that was really cool and there's just been so many other things that have happened in the last couple of years that a couple of times I've had to be reminded of because it's been that wild you know a bit of a pinch yourself yeah 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 <laughs> well yeah I mean like you said you do tremendous work and I think what I find so remarkable about what you do Marley is is that you're you you share other people's stories and I think that's what's so beautiful is that you use your platform to raise up the voices of others and especially in in your community um and I just think that that is so important and I think that is so gracious of you to use your platform to do that um and it's something that yeah I really admire so I've been very excited to get you on the podcast. I honestly couldn't believe that you replied to my message so quickly and you're like, yeah, I'd love to. I was like, oh my God, oh my God. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I mean, today will be an interesting conversation. Um, I touched on it before with Marley. It's it's a very interesting landscape at the moment. I mean, um, 2020 with the pandemic brought a really huge Black Lives Matter movement. And I think that shone a lot of light, not only on what was happening in America, but what was happening in Australia. And that movement had been, I mean, for the past couple of years now, I think that movement had been really gaining momentum and it just took, you know, the events of what was happening in America for the world to really stop and shine a light on what was going on. And I think I mean, as um, a white Australian, it really took me back and really made me reevaluate my values, my priorities and what the hell I was doing with myself. And I think it's quite a confusing time because now that this has become trendy, I think it's really important to assess our actions and make sure that especially being, you know, a white female Australian, make sure that whatever we do we're doing it for the right reasons and not because of the trend that we're doing this because this is a personal value of ourselves that we feel like this is what we believe in and how we want to move forward and so in it's it's a confusing time to navigate that because I have been so excited to have you on the podcast but I'm also aware that I want to be doing this for all the right reasons um and so I'm hoping that we can Talk a little bit about, you know, Indigenous First Nation culture here today, What ally, define what allyship means and how, you know, we can be better allies to our Indigenous community and talk a little bit about performative activism in the wake of what's been going on um, in, in the media, I guess. So thank you for providing me with your time. Um, I'll stop the rambling and get straight into it. The first question I would really love for you to share with us would be some of the challenges you have faced growing up. I mean, 
did you feel different to others or was it obvious or did you just feel like anyone else was racism prevalent in your upbringing mm-hmm. um first of all don't feel awkward about these sorts of questions i you know have put myself in a position where i am someone who's you know sharing my experiences maybe to take the burden off some other people so please feel free to you know treat this as a, a safe space and ask those questions because that's what I'm here for. Um, and also, I should also preface by saying, you know, I'm one Aboriginal person who's sharing my experiences and I don't speak for anyone else. Um, but, you know, that's this is a really great starting point. If it is a starting point for you, just go out there and leapfrog off all the, these different stories to just get a, a much fuller picture. But, yeah, for me, um, I have to also say that I was born into privilege and that um, – you know, financial privilege. My dad was a professional rugby league player. So we, um, you know, were set up really well. He and my mum both grew up in housing commission in Western Sydney. So, and they both had um, fathers who were abusive alcoholics. So they really instilled in us um, from day dot, both me and my sister, how lucky we were to have the start to life that we did. Um, Mm -hmm. Growing up again in the Sutherland Shire place, that's pretty affluent. Um, You know, we didn't want or need for anything um, growing up. And I'm incredibly grateful for that because it gave me a foundation to be able to you know chase my dreams and not have all these massive obstacles that send in front of anyone who doesn't have such a a great start to life so I'm really really grateful for that but in terms of racism being present in in my upbringing um the the short answer is yes um quite present again because I I think now I, I see it quite clearly that it was very reliant on on the society that I grew up in, the community that I grew up in. 2005, I'm 10 years old and we have the Cronulla riots. And uh, I remember my mum being afraid for my dad to go down to Cronulla Beach by himself after that had happened. And, you know, obviously it was a different ethnic group that was being targeted at that time. But the fact that my dad was black made her worried and, that was kind of like the first sort of examples of that sort of stuff um, where I, I didn't fully understand it. And I, I think I naively at that age thought that everyone's dad was, you know, a little bit afraid to go to Cronulla for, because of that reason. Uh, but as things moved on and there's a few stories that I have been reminded of now as an adult that, um, you know, really freaked me out at how much more prevalent it was than what I realized Uh mm. I well I mean as a child you just it's it's your environment that you're growing up with like I I think it's not until you're older and you can reflect it back upon it that you're like yeah that wasn't normal to everyone else's upbringings I think that also growing up in in a a mixed household where my my mum is white my dad's black and not only that but my extended family is really multicultural I have cousins that are Filipino and um Lebanese and and you know lots of different backgrounds and it just was never made a point of difference like it it, you know we look different and we had like different cultural elements in our life but um you know it wasn't it wasn't a thing that was ever pointed out but you know there's been a few stories that mum's told me now like um there was you know we lived in a different house to what we what we do now um in the very early years it was in a cul-de-sac and all the kids used to play um together out out in the cul-de-sac on the front lawns and that and there was apparently at, at one point um one family stopped letting their kids play with us when they realized that we were ab- aboriginal which i didn't know until about 18 months ago which seemed quite i just couldn't believe it 
Um, and then when we moved to where we are now, um, and I went to primary school around the corner, um, there it was a really small primary school and, and the parents were all kind of quite social together and, and um, had lots of barbecues and things. And one of the mums told um, my mum that at one of the barbecues that uh, my parents weren't at, the, there was they were talking about the fact that there had been a lot of um, cars broken into in the suburb um, recently and they a few of the dads made the joke that it was my dad who did it um, because he's black. So, you know, that sort of stuff was at the underlying um, foundations of, of, you know, those early years, those kind of formative years. And um, it didn't impact me that much because in the school environment, I had my, you know, little, I used to have this beaded um, bracelet that um, was in the colours of the Aboriginal flag and I had pride on it and I used to wear it every day. And kids kind of were like, oh, yeah, um, this is my friend Marley. She's Aboriginal. That's pretty cool. That's what her bracelet is. Like it was like a cool thing. It was not a big deal. And then it was kind of, that was it. It wasn't until I got to high school uh, where it kind of put me in a position where I understood that I was different. I understood that I was on the outer and I understood that people had expectations of my family once they knew what our race was. And that came to fruition, uh, you know, three weeks, four weeks into year seven. My dad picked me up from school one day and he got out of the car because it was raining and he is a police officer. So he had had night shift and was in his pyjamas, which was mortifying um, to 12-year-old Marley. Um, Yeah, thanks, Dad. Thanks, Dad. (laughs) Now I realise it was actually so nice of him to make sure I didn't get wet in the rain or whatever. This big umbrella. And the next day, kids obviously paid attention to that and I thought it would have been because he was in his pajamas and I was quite embarrassed and whatever but instead when they asked me who it was that picked me up and I told them it was my dad they didn't believe me at first and they asked is it your real dad or your stepdad and I was like no that's my I think he's my real dad like oh god um and the response there became oh why is your dad black and I as I mentioned you know the household I grew up in those sort of distinctions were never made. And like, yeah, we call ourselves blackfellas, but being like, oh, you're black and blackfellas is very different things. That's a, a term of how we identify, how we connect to each other in our community. And it's also a term of endearment. And then this was kind of an accusatory black and then so much more came with that. Um, and also questions of like why my skin color was really different to my dad's a lot lighter blah, blah, blah. And, you know, eventually came to light that my peers had never met an Aboriginal person before. And there was a lot of stereotypes that came with that. Um, so my whole schooling, um, then became a kind of, you know, um, recurring conversation of questions of my identity. You're not really black or when something racist was said and I would blow up about it. Um, there would be, Oh, well, you're not like them. You're different to the other Aboriginal people. And, I got called a petrol stiffer. I got called an abo all the time. Um, I had kids then when I would say, oh, my God, don't say that. That's, like, so racist. It's the equivalent of calling an African-American person the N-word. They would go, well, no, it's not. Um, I'm like, okay, sorry. Uh, I, I don't have that right to have the opinion as the Aboriginal person in the room. Um, you know, and I had teachers make racist jokes in class and point me out as the expert on Aboriginal history and expect me to speak for my whole race and 60,000 years of history and put this pressure on me. And I got to about 16, I was really quite an angry teenager and um, quite a lonely one. I think we all go through that sort of feeling as an 
some point in our adolescence. But again, as I've become an adult and can reflect on that period, I can see it is so intrinsically linked to how I was pushed on the outer because of not only the fact that I was Aboriginal, but because of how loud and proud I was in my identity. So I I had a really distinct fork in the road moment when, you know, right at that point when people asked about my my dad and why he was black in year seven, where I could have gone through my schooling just, you know, sort of cruising along and not really doing anything that would draw attention to me or, you know, you know, I guess cause too much of a, of a fuss, right? Or I could be, if I was going to be the example of Aboriginal Australia for these peers of mine, I was going to be the best and the most informative or the most um, loud and proud that I could be for that example. And that's what I chose to do. Um, and it was definitely the, probably the path that was harder and, um, you know, very much put me in that, that outer position um, from a lot of other people. And there, yeah, there was, there's a reason I, I see like two people from school now, like I'm 25 and I only have like two school friends and, um, the rest of them. And it's not to say there were all these kind of like neo-Nazi super racists, but they definitely were not very welcome of all the kids in my year who were from different backgrounds. And there was like a very small group of non-white people. Um, and it, it was like pretty rubbish. Um, and it was, you know, my, my high schooling was bookended by two pretty significant events. Year seven, um, was 2008. Kevin Rudd made the sorry speech and my year 12 was 2013 when Adam Goods was in the headlines with everything that was happening there. And these were really distinct moments in a, I think in modern Australian history around how we talk about Aboriginal Australia. But when I was trying to talk about them, or especially, you know, when I was in year 12 and obviously, you know, turning 18 and, and you know, the loudest and proudest I, I could be and, and the strongest I felt, talk about the Goodsy stuff. Again, there was just so much shut down and so much opposition and no care for how it was impacting me mentally and emotionally um, that I left school absolutely well, I got to the, was the end of school, couldn't wait to get out of there, hated it, never wanted to see most of those people again and so excited to get into the real world. And then, so, you know, really when I did get into the real world, I did flourish because I could get away from that stuff and I could be around people who were not so ignorant. And, you know, I, th I think as much as it was like really awful at school and my sister had a very similar experience in the year below me as well, um, I have seen a positive change in the way that this sort of stuff is spoken about in the Shire and in even some of the the people who were pretty awful to me at school um, were in that, that group of talking about Black Lives Matter last year and I could roll my eyes at their black squares and whatever on Instagram. But even if it is because it's trendy, the fact that there might be a bit more space to have those conversations and to be more wary of how you speak or how you talk about this sort of stuff in a school environment, work environment, whatever, has an impact on the black and brown people around you. That to me is a really important and undeniably positive 
um, step in the right direction. Mm. Listening to your story, I mean, I feel really emotionally moved and um, feel really mad that that is your story. Um, oh, it just, and part of me is really mad because I think why I feel so mad is that I was a bystander in a lot of racism growing up and I didn't do anything about it. And it's only now with the hindsight of being 25 and having done the research and having, you know, lived experience that I wish I could go back to being 12, 14, 16 years old and being in situations where I was witnessing racism and I could have stood up, but I didn't. And that sits really uncomfortably with me now. Mm. Um, it makes me so mad that that is your experience and it makes me so mad that I had the opportunity to change someone like yourself's experience and I didn't because I was afraid to speak up because I didn't know any better because I grew up in privilege and I did not understand what that meant when I was 12. And I don't think that's a good enough excuse anymore for children and especially for high school environments because, you know, high school is such a shit time <laughs> and it's it's only made harder for, I mean, for people that have to experience racism. Like that is just like to think that, you know, high school's hard for everyone but then when you have to throw in the fact of race it makes it like even more difficult and I just think that you know this oh it just makes my blood boil that we need to create more I mean just change in these kind of environments to make it feel more open and I really hope that now the kids of today being 12 14 16 are having parents that are having these discussions with them and are educating on them because you know I think I love my parents, but, you know, I, I grew up in my, a farming community of isolation where, you know, I did not grow around, grow up around any people of color at all. Like I, I, I think the first time that I really made friends with people from different backgrounds, cultures was when I went to high school. And that's really sad because I think that gives you, it, it doesn't allow you the time to catch up and educate yourself on how to behave in those kind of circumstances. I think that um, your, what you feel about looking back on, on that sort of stuff in hindsight is pretty common. I think mm. that we also need to understand like a really big, um, you know, changes that we've seen in our society since that time we were growing up. And also that the duty of care and the duty of having these tough conversations and, and making sure the environments are safe for, you know, non, you know, white Anglo-Saxon straight kids, which is really who flourishes the most at mm -hmm. high school, who come from, you know, middle-class families, um, is the school system. I think the education mm -hmm. system um, doesn't or hasn't been very good at equipping teachers with, teaching kids who are different from mm. fostering positive social environments when di those differences are celebrated. I think the mm. curriculum is so far behind when it comes to Australian history, when it comes to oh, just about everything, you know, we haven't seen a change in our school system really that's been made any significant 
difference since the industrial revolution that's how long we've been doing the same things in uh, the education system in, in australia we've been doing the same thing we copied the uk um we haven't seen we we've there's all this talk about like our, our literacy and numeracy rates not being good enough they're actually on the decline we're seeing less people going to stem jobs all this kind of stuff i think you know I'm no expert in education, but I just think that we need this complete overhaul on the way that we teach kids, the way that we raise them to be not only successful academically, but also in terms of how they operate in society, how they treat people who are different, how they have conversations, how they even, and this is the thing that really pisses me off, every time we come around to an election, and I'm sure you probably have similar experiences with your, your friends and peers, Everyone likes to laugh about the fact that they've done a donkey vote because they don't even really know who, who they're voting for, right? I don't know. I just do whatever my parents say. Or I don't know. Like, I just, you know, drew a penis on it. Like, so often that's like a thing and it's funny. And I'm always a person who's like, oh, my God, don't do that. Right? We are so the lucky. The future is in our hands. Exactly. Like, yeah. and, and if you're going to have the audacity to complain about the fact that things haven't changed or things you know the the people in power don't represent what you want first of all you need to understand what it is that you want and second of all you have to make the right decisions at a polling booth and put pressure mm. on your representatives and the people we put in power to make that change otherwise we're just going to be in the same cycle of you know 50 60 something year old white men with receding hairlines who are you know all look the same and all, all look the same, have the same and no matter when it comes yeah down to exactly it doesn't matter what party they're from they've all got the same thing they, they say the same thing with a few different words they wrap it up in a different colored bow it's the same crap and that's why we're in the same cycle and it starts in our education system because every so many of my friends came out of school and i found myself like oh i have a minor in politics right in my, my university study and because of that and also the fact that I am politically engaged. And when you're an Aboriginal person, when you're, again, a person who's from any kind of marginalised group that's impacted by political decisions, you have no choice but to be politicised. And you have, you do not have the privilege of not zoning in and understanding what's happening in the political sphere of Australia. People, my friends come to me and they're like, I don't know what to do. Like, I don't even know who our premier is. Like, I think it's a bit different now with COVID because all we've seen is premiers. But like, you know, all that kind of stuff. I don't know. Like, I don't know who who represents what I care about. Like, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I'm not the spokesperson. I'm not going to influence what you vote on or whatever. But you should have a baseline understanding of how this works. I found myself the last time we had a local election around my area having to explain like the three levels of government in this country to some of my friends. And I'm like, oh my God, like, I'm so sad that, but also this is, it's quite telling how we're in the same situation. Yeah, it's, and again, reflects upon when I look back at my education, did not learn anything about the history of our First Nations people, did not learn like uh, very briefly about politics, but I mean, I not enough to really be able to go into the world with a really strong understanding of how it works and how to vote. Like didn't get any of that. Don't know how to do my taxes. I mean, I wish I was <laughs> taught that in high school and also came out of it knowing nothing about sex education and the female body. I mean, mm. that's a huge thing as well. That's missed, but back to the point about, I mean, our, 
Indigenous and Aboriginal history. I did not learn any of that until in 2019, I went traveling for six months around the Australia with my boyfriend and we did a lot of the Kimberley and the Northern Territory. And that is the first time, the very first time at the age of wow, 23 that I was exposed to Aboriginal history, which, and it was a really like one of those things that you just sit back and go, why am I only learning about this now? Mm. Like that's, this isn't okay. And this is actually really weird. Like really like hits you. And it's kind of this weird, why the hell is it taken until now, until I'm a grown adult to even learn half this stuff. And then, and then it's like, but we accept, we expect the education system to shape our children in a way that makes them uh, approachable, uh, intelligent and respectable in today's society the education system doesn't reflect any of the values of today's society whatsoever and doesn't like teach any of the information that is required in today's society to be Mm. you know a, a member an active member of change of good of intelligence um in our society it's oh yeah it's that's a really tough thing to crack um so why why journalism why storytelling why did you decide to move into this career i think it was a no-brainer for me um i've I've always been passionate about stories and how stories um can make change and, and that can be the change in how you feel about something that um the change in in your perspective i've always uh felt so impacted when I've seen really good storytelling done. Um, Mm. And it's, you know, I remember being a kid and and watching, um, you know, a a young Aboriginal woman who'd um, graduated from Harvard uh, at a, at an, like a school leadership thing that I was at um, that was specific for Aboriginal kids. And I can't even remember her name or too much of the specifics, but the way she told her story and, and, um, talked about how she had gotten to, you know, one of the premier universities in the world and representing our people and, and absolutely killing it there shaped my understanding of what my capabilities were at 15. And that that's where this, you know, real passion for, for stories and, and what they can do um, to, to help people, um, you know, believe in themselves and, and also, mm-hmm. um, you know, enact change that's where it started and I yeah I guess it's um I'm I'm so privileged to to be able to do it and I think in a lot of ways it's also a continuation of what my people have been doing for 60,000 years Mm -hmm. we we're an oral storytelling history that's what we do it's what we've always done it's how we've always connected to each other and and passed on knowledge so it's very much something that is quite primal for me um you know I've always been doing it. I've, I just didn't, you know, for a long time, I didn't think it would be able to be something I do full time or be able to call myself a writer, be even be able to call myself an author or all those sorts of things. Um, you know, it's the thing that, that brings me a lot of joy. And I think that I, I'd explode if I wasn't writing or, or telling stories. Mm-hmm. How do you navigate an industry um, that is, not only quite predominantly sexist, but then throw in the race element on top of that. I mean, is that a challenge in itself or have you encountered some tough experiences? 
Um, I think that I'm really lucky at the point in time that I'm coming into this space where there are so many outlets that are like just know that they'll get left behind if they're not sharing a diversity of opinion and perspective. I think that I also live in a bubble where I'm kind of, you know, been immersed in in the sort of ABCs and, and um, you know, the, those and The Guardian and like those sorts of outlets um, where there, there is that dedication to a kind of more left-leaning media. Um, I think there's also a, a great rise in, in you know, um, youth-led or um, independent media outlets that, that, again, really foster a culture for diverse perspectives. And I think social media, as much as it's a double-edged sword and can be toxic and can be a spreader of false information and this sort of stuff, there's a, no, there's a democracy to it uh, that allows voices, again, that have previously gone unheard um, or delegitimized in the mainstream media space to now flourish. So, yeah, I'm really lucky in that sense. Um, timing's really worked. I haven't – I think also, like – it's a weird thing because as much as, you know, I studied creative writing at uni and I wanted to be a writer and I, you know, purposely started writing and filing stories for your NITVs and now I write regularly for pedestrian and all that kind of stuff. I was sort of like working towards that. It was never explicitly like, this is what I want to be, or this is what I'm pursuing. Mm. Um, I, again, I've just been in the right place at the right time or just, um, you know, Put, put my hat in the ring for one thing and then uh, ended up on a different path and kind of bouncing all over the place. And uh, the whole time I've just kept doing what I love, which is, is writing stuff that I care about. So, yeah, it's pretty weird. Um, and I think my experience is like so not like anyone else's because, um, you know, again, not everyone gets DMs from Mia Friedman and the like <laughs> i mean mia friedman if you're out there i would also love it but... <laughs> so that's it for today guys part two of my interview with marley will be airing next week so make sure you subscribe so you can get that one on tuesday when it drops we chat all things about allyship and performative activism in the wake of the Black Lives Matter movement. So if you enjoyed today's episode, part one, I would really love it if you could subscribe and share it with your friends. Otherwise, stay tuned for next week's part two and come follow us on Instagram at thewowpodcast underscore for more updates. Lastly, just a friendly reminder that the information shared in this podcast is general advice only and does not take into account your personal situation or needs. Where appropriate, please consult a professional first. Thanks, guys. Have a fab week. Roll,